Hello guys, and for the second time in as many weeks, it's Double Enthusiast Week this one. That's what comes from writing episodes that end up so long they'd make Tolkien puff his cheeks out and say, hang on a minute mate. But what you then do is break the episode down and make each case into an episode of its own. Then you release them a little bit apart so they don't get mixed up and lost in each other. Bonus for me, bonus for you guys. Of course, I'm still Paul, the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm still in North Wales. It's still in springtime, although it doesn't look very much it today. And I'm bowled over by you guys joining me here as ever, because it still absolutely means the world. I hope that you're all good and well as the episode finds you. So if you caught the earlier episode this week, When a Killer Comes Knocking, you'll have heard me say that I originally wrote up an episode that featured two cases, Maureen's murder and the case that we shall focus upon here in this episode. As I've said before, these are both cases that I covered long before I was the podcast host that you're listening to, when I was just a simple blogger researching and writing cases for the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. Now there's a reason that I choose the cases that I cover. If you need any further explanation for it, then if you see Adam's UK True Crime website for an article that I did for him expanding more upon this, which I also shared last episode's show notes. And since I've started the show, I've always said to myself that the cases that I've covered in the blog will at some point become show episodes. I don't know how far down the line it'll be, but they will do, because these are people whose tales I think need to be told. The case featured this episode is no exception from that. It's an unbelievably savage, horrific and as yet unsolved crime that took place more than 65 years ago now in the UK city of Coventry in the West Midlands. I think it's the furthest that we've gone back so far for a case on the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast episodes. Although the previous Patreon episode that I released earlier this month does go back a couple of years further still. Like the previous episode, Maureen's case, this one features a crime that raises more questions than it provides answers. Because of the frustrating gaps in information that you of course always run into when you're researching unsolved cases such as these, so much of the episode has to remain speculation and theory. That's what I do, I give my own spin and I think out loud about the crimes whenever we feature unsolved cases on the show. And I also invite you guys as ever to get in touch following it to share your own thoughts and theories, because I'd absolutely love to hear them. I don't claim to be right through what I say, but nor would I spout utter bollocks deliberately. I mean, why would I do that? I hope that you've come to realise that by now, he says, hoping anyway. As ever, this episode contains descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as ever, folks. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second of this week's double episodes, where we look at a case I've entitled, Death of the Dancing Housewife. The city of Coventry in England's West Midlands is the 12th largest city in the UK, and apart from being known for Lady Godiva riding naked through the city on horseback to protest against the high taxes that were being levied on the city folk, which I did actually read is the origin of the phrase Peeping Tom, which I never knew before. By legend, Coventry is also supposedly the birthplace of St George, reportedly where the first armoured tank was built, and my favourite random stat of the week that I found whilst researching, it's supposedly the city where Chuck Berry recorded My Ding-A-Ling at a dance hall there. You never can tell what you're going to come across looking these things up, I tell you. Did you see what I did there, eh? 
I've only ever been to Coventry once myself to a charlatan's gig at the Casbah there many years ago. I'm sure that you'll be unsurprised to hear. And my friends who were there with me, who I know also listen to the show, will remember it well, I'm sure. It's a really long story, but next day it was the most difficult place ever to find a simple breakfast. I got trapped in one of those cars that you put money outside, found outside supermarkets, you know, the little postman pat van type thing for kids to go in. And I had to ask possibly the hairiest man that I've ever seen in my life for a light for my fag whilst I was there also. I'll never forget him. He looked like Michael J. Fox's dad in Teen Wolf when he opens the door when he finds out he's a werewolf in the bathroom. Coventry is also well known for the mass destruction that was inflicted upon it during the Luftwaffe bombing of the Second World War. Indeed, following the most intense bombing campaign of the war to date, on the 14th of November 1940, so much of Coventry was destroyed and so much destruction reigned that Joseph Goebbels himself reportedly coined the phrase Coventried, which he used thereafter to describe similar levels of destruction that the Luftwaffe inflicted upon other targets. Horrible twat that he was, eh? Following the end of the war, the city began to be restored and many families who'd lived through the war years there began to rebuild their lives. The Morgano family, who lived in the Coventry district of Radford, just north of the city centre, were one of these such families. By 1954, the Morgano family consisted of 46-year-old Carlo Morgano, his 44-year-old wife Penelope, and their two sons, 16-year-old Michael and 14-year-old Adrian. Although he was of an Italian heritage, both Carlo and Penelope had met on the Isle of Wight, where both had been born and brought up. The young Penelope, Phyllis, Warren and Carlo had begun courting in their teenage years, they'd fallen in love and had eventually married at St Thomas's Roman Catholic Church in Cowes in 1930, when both were in their early 20s. Carlo, who'd worked up from an apprentice driver and mechanic whilst living on the island, had accepted a position as an inspector at the Daimler Motor Factory that was based in Coventry around this time and he and Penelope made the move north from the Isle of Wight to there shortly after their marriage, soon settling in the Coventry area. The couple's first child, Michael, had come along in 1938, followed by a second son, Adrian, two years later, but by this time the Morgano family was forcibly separated for a while, when the house that they lived in was almost destroyed during the bombing campaigns of the Second World War. As a result, Penelope and the two children returned to live with members of her family in the hometown of Ryde on the Isle of Wight, before eventually returning to live with Carlo back in Coventry in a new house following the cessation of the war. Today, the house at number 7 Holland Road in the Coventry district of Radford is a nondescript pebble-dashed end terraced house with a curved garden, and back in 1951, it was where the Morgano family had moved to, soon settling into the large, comfortable property. Carlo had risen to the position of production manager at the factory by this time also, with Penelope having the role of a full-time housewife, mother and active member of the local ladies' guild. The Morgano family were highly respected and thought of amongst their friends and neighbours, and were considered by them to be comfortably off, a view that Penelope helped fashion with her always immaculately kept house, her always immaculate dress and varied yet stylish sense of fashion. Now they certainly weren't wrong, indeed Carlo did provide well for the Morgano family from his lucrative job, 
and combined with the meticulous high standards that the attractive Penelope set of keeping her home, her family and herself, which she adhered to, it's fair to say that the impression that the Morganos were comfortable and happy was easily given off. Their life centred then around work and family, their home and their garden, but mainly their social activities focused around old-style ballroom dancing, a pastime which the Morganos and even their sons were very enthusiastic about, having done it for a number of years and it was a scene that they were heavily involved with. They'd forged several strong friendships with fellow dancers at the nearby Savoy Dancing Club in Coventry City Centre, where they were regular well-known faces that could often be found chucking shapes about at least three or four, maybe even five times a week. Like most other families of that era, there was of course a routine in the Morgano household during the working week. Once Carlo and the boys were out of the house first thing in the morning, Penelope would do most of the household chores before preparing lunch for her sons and Carlo, who would arrive back from Coondon Road's Bab Lake School and the Daimler factory respectively each day at about 1pm. The family would then eat together, and once the boys had returned to school and Carlo to work after lunch, Penelope's afternoons were generally free for her to indulge in activities concerning the ladies' guild, going shopping or taking tea with her friends, until she returned home and began preparing the family's evening meal each night at about 5.30pm. Now this was a well-established routine by that time that she was accustomed to, one she even arguably enjoyed, and aside from the fact that Michael had by that time left school and was working as a hairdresser at Coventry Police Headquarters, there was no reason to suggest that Monday the 18th of January 1954 should be any different than usual. Monday the 18th of January 1954 was in fact the day that changed the Morgano family forever though. That Monday was a bitterly cold winter's day and as usual Carlo and Adrian had come home from work and school respectively for lunch at 1pm. Penelope had made their lunch and during the meal she told both that she'd planned later that afternoon at about 3pm to visit the couple's close friends Mr and Mrs Sidney Worrell to take afternoon tea with them at their house in nearby Bassett Road which was only less than half a mile away from the Morgano household. Now this was a not uncommon occurrence and neither Carlo nor Adrian thought anything more of this as they left the house to return to work and school at 1.45pm that afternoon. Adrian was later than usual returning home from school that afternoon as he'd been asked by his mother to stop and collect laundry on his way home. But when he did return home at 4.50pm he found the house in darkness and both the front and back doors to the house locked. With no answer, even after repeated knocking, Adrian sat and waited on the doorstep, thinking that his mother had simply been held up at the Worrells' house and would be home any moment. When Carlo arrived home from work an hour later and Adrian was still on the doorstep though, freezing, both father and son were now perplexed, which rapidly gave way to concern, and using Carlo's key, both entered the house. Upon entering the house and calling out for Penelope, there was no answer, and nothing in number 7 Holland Road seemed to be in disarray. The kitchen was clean and tidy, and all of the lunchtime crockery had been washed and put away, although there were no signs of any preparation for the family's evening meal having been made. 
The lounge was tidy, with all of the brasses polished and the fire cleaned out and swept, ready for lighting that evening. Immaculate, the same as it ever was. When Carlo went through to the dining room of the house, however, he made a horrific discovery when he turned on the lights. It was a sight that he would take to his grave with him 32 years later. Slumped in an easy chair next to the television, almost unrecognisable, was the fully clothed body of his wife. Blood covered the entire room, the walls ran with it, and the ceiling, floor, and the easy chair that she was slumped in were saturated with it. Penelope had been savagely, almost maniacally, battered to death. So viciously had she been attacked that the majority of her head and skull had been caved in and smashed to pieces. A blood-stained 12-inch serrated carving knife also lay across Penelope's lap, which had been used to cause further horrific mutilation to what remained of her face. Shaken and grief-stricken, Carla ushered his son out of the house and immediately called police. Imagine finding your wife like that, or your mum even. I hope that nobody listening ever has or ever has to find anything like that, to be honest. Police who arrived on the scene in rapid response found no signs of any ransacking or damage to the property, and nothing was found to have been stolen or disturbed. Whilst the body of Penelope Morgana was photographed in situ and then taken away for a post-mortem, the house was sealed and a forensic examination of the grisly scene began. House-to-house inquiries got underway in the area, an incident room was set up, and Carlo Magano was taken into Coventry Police Headquarters for questioning as the initial and most obvious suspect in his wife's death. After a 10-hour interview, though, he was released the following morning, with his whereabouts fully and unquestionably accounted for, and police satisfied that he was not the person responsible for the savage murder of his wife. Despite local gossip and rumour about his culpability, the kind that always must persist in unsolved cases such as these, Carlo remained dignified in his grief and mystified as to who would want to kill Penelope and why, resolving to offer police as much assistance as he possibly could whilst caring for his devastated sons. He said later, There were no secrets between my wife and myself, and as far as I know she hadn't an enemy in the world. I think it was impossible that she knew her attacker. Meanwhile, police had managed to recover partial fingerprints that didn't belong to the Meganos from the crime scene following a forensic examination and comparison. But this promising trail went cold when none of these partial prints were found to match any fingerprints that were held on police files. There were also none found on the knife that Penelope had on her lap which was found to have been the knife used to inflict the severe facial mutilation. The weapon that had been used to shatter a skull, later determined to have likely been a blunt-ended two-pound lump hammer, had been removed from the scene by whoever had killed Penelope. Despite a thorough search of the Megano house and garden, all open areas and gardens of Radford, bins and drains in the area being emptied and searched, and a large-scale fingertip search of nearby Radford Common being undertaken, which was opposite the murder scene, this weapon was never found. Understandably shaken by such a brutal crime and believing that they were hunting a maniac, the Chief Constable of Coventry Police, Edward Pendleton, was quick to summon the assistance of Scotland Yard detectives 
and Detective Superintendent John Edmonds and Detective Sergeant Ted Williams of the Yard were subsequently dispatched to Coventry to assist and advise on the Magano investigation. Whilst that Magano's life and background was looked at in an attempt to establish a possible motive and or any possible suspects, and house-to-house inquiries in the Radford area got well underway, detectives awaited the full results of the post-mortem. Now the post-mortem report on Penelope Magano made for disturbing findings, and it gives only a hint as to the exact horror and brutality of the murder. Extracts from the final report by examining pathologist Professor James Webster are as follows. Obviously she had very grave injuries. She was fully clothed and had injuries of more than three types. The total number of injuries was 25. The first were defensive or protective injuries to her hands, which she'd held up to protect herself. The second type were severe facial mutilations made with an instrument such as a knife and focused around the mouth. This not only severed the lips, but served to cut the tongue in half also. The third group of injuries were the most serious and were inflicted by a blunt instrument, most likely a hammer. So great was the damage that she had no flaw to the base of the skull. This had caused considerable damage to the brain and she was almost bled white. This had been a healthy woman and the cause of death was shock due to multiple injuries including gross skull fracture and lacerations to the brain. Can you imagine finding a loved one like that? There's just no words, is there? How horrific that must have been. The pathologist also reported that there were no signs of any sexual assault on Penelope or any signs of recent sexual activity, with also no sign of robbery or ransacking to the house. Why had Penelope been targeted and killed in such a brutal, horrific way? Hunting a maniac sounds about right, doesn't it? The time of Penelope's death was estimated at post-mortem as being no later than 4pm, but this could be narrowed further down, as the normally punctual Penelope had never arrived at the Worrells' house for 3pm as she'd been expected, which was only a few minutes' walk away, and she was alive when Carlo and Adrian had left the house at about 1.45pm that afternoon to return to school and work, so this gave police a window of just over an hour and 15 minutes, during which time it was believed that Penelope had met a brutal death. Evidence supporting this time frame was found in the house also. On the bed in the main bedroom, a clean and laundered dress was found laid out on the bed. When Penelope's body was found, she was wearing her house clothes covered by an apron, the same clothing that she'd worn that lunchtime, and her usual attire for cleaning and housekeeping. Her husband was insistent that Penelope, who took pride in her appearance and dress, and in accordance with the values of the time, would never have gone visiting dressed in such a way, nor would she have invited any caller to the house while she was dressed in such a manner. Indeed, the scene almost suggested that Penelope was preparing to change her clothes in accordance with keeping her afternoon tea appointment when a killer had struck, yet there was no sign of a forced entry to the house, and the killer, or killers had locked both front and back doors when leaving, so it appeared that Penelope had invited whoever had killed her in willingly. This left police with three theories. Penelope had been killed by a stranger posing as an official of some kind. Penelope had been killed by a person that she knew well. Or Penelope had been killed by a couple, 
again people that she was comfortable to have in the house. But an intense police investigation into Penelope's life found nothing that would stand out and mark her for someone marked for such a brutal death. The Maganos were the height of respectability and when by all accounts happily married, there was no evidence found of either Penelope or Carlo being involved in an affair, there were no money worries, and the family and friends all testified as to the couple's happy and strong marriage. Inquiries revealed that the couple's social life focused pretty much solely around their pastime of old-time ballroom dancing, which they'd done for many years alongside their friends who were all active members of the Savoy Ballroom in Coventry City Centre. And from the beginning of the inquiry, this was an angle that police actively focused upon, believing that the key to unlocking the murder puzzle would be found somewhere within this circle. All members of the Savoy Ballroom Dancing Club that the Maganos belonged to were interviewed, but this advanced the inquiry no further apart from police learning one thing. In September 1953, Penelope had made steps to change her lifestyle. Prior to this, the Maganos had previously been for some time involved in fostering children, and at that time, September 1953, they had a foster child living with them, a young girl called Barbara. Without any warning, and for reasons that were unclear, Penelope had withdrawn all involvement with the foster services, and the child had been returned to the children's home. Penelope had also at this time resigned from the Radford Towns Women's Guild, of which she'd formerly been an active member, and the drama group that she participated in productions as a member of, given the reason that she was spreading herself too thin and was exhausted from running a household and raising a family, combined with these townswomen guild activities, drama, plus the regular dances that she and Carlo attended, up to five times a week, and that she felt that she needed to rest in the afternoons. Fair enough, you'd think. I was knackered just typing that lot out. But a couple of months later, from December 1953, Penelope had been seen on several occasions leaving the house in the afternoons with a pair of dancing shoes wrapped in brown paper, reportedly at least three times in the week leading up to her murder. Carlo, when asked at a later interview about his wife's movements, was unaware of these excursions when he was told, and was unable to explain where Penelope had been going to nor could any of her close friends at the Savoy, who were all equally claimed to be mystified. Had Penelope been taking secret lessons from a dance partner or an instructor? Despite a widespread appeal about this avenue of inquiry, no one came forward to say that they'd been instructing or dancing with Penelope during this time, so where had she been going? Back to the drawing board. Penelope's funeral was held at Canley Crematorium on Monday the 25th of January, just a week after her murder, in a ceremony that was deliberately low-key, attended by just 15 close family and friends, and even brought forward by two hours to deter onlookers. More than 30 floral tributes adorned the service, donated by dancing clubs the length and breadth of the country, who'd all raised collections to send wreaths from the various clubs, appalled at the horrific murder of the housewife who loved to dance. By this time, Radford and its outlying areas had been saturated by house-to-house inquiries, all local tradespersons and delivery persons in these areas had been spoken to and eliminated from the inquiry, and a check of all known violent local offenders had been made, but one by one, 
all of these two were ruled out as suspects. Feeling that the person who committed the murder must have done so in a frenzy and with maniacal force, police even made checks with all mental hospitals in the Coventry area to ensure that a patient had not gone missing on the day of the murder, but this again drew a blank, as no patient was reported as being unaccounted for on the day. Police even took the then unprecedented step of compiling a questionnaire that was widely distributed to more than 1,500 homes in the Radford area to be completed and returned to the 50-strong investigating team. Simple, to the point and effective, it's reproduced here as the following list. 1. Who are regular callers and what is the reason for them calling? Give dates and times. 2. Other callers, give dates and times. 3. Who called on January the 18th? Time. 4. Do you know Mrs. Magano? 5. Did you see her on January the 18th? 6. Have you seen her with anyone other than her family? 7. Who calls at 7 Holland Road regularly? 8. Have you seen a car near 7 Holland Road? 9. Are you interested in old-time dancing? 10. Are you a member of the Towns Women's Guild? 11. Where were you between 2pm and 5pm on January the 18th? 12. Any other information? Pretty straightforward and direct, to the point that, isn't it? We like that, to the point. But the results of this questionnaire, when it was collated, when they were all collated, produced very little substance to advance the inquiry further. Nobody reported having heard any screams or sounds of disturbance coming from 7 Holland Road at the crucial time. There were no reports of any unaccounted for or suspicious vehicles nearby, which would in 1954 have been fewer in number and therefore much more conspicuous. And nobody had been seen running from the direction of the Magano house that afternoon. Also, all people who were spoken to after being given the questionnaire could provide alibis for the day of the murder. But the questionnaire and house-to-house inquiries combined did produce reports of two people the police urgently wished to trace to eliminate from the inquiry. Firstly, reports came in of a man who'd called at at least 20 houses in the surrounding area on the pretense of being an electrical inspector, although reports of the same man came in from as far away as Birmingham, Dorchester, West Drayton and even Oxford. He'd managed to con his way into several houses in these areas with this ruse, always ones that were occupied by lone housewives, on the pretense that he needed to check electrical points and switches in the house for sources that may be causing reported electrical interference in the area. Once inside, he would make what some classed as improper or suggestive, others directly sexual, advances towards these women, although in each case he was reported as just leaving when he was rebuffed and never offering any threats or violence towards the occupant. Through collective descriptions of the man, he was described as being aged between 25 to 30 years old, 5 feet 2 to 5 feet 6 inches in height, having thick wavy black hair, clean shaven with a full and rosy complexion, very chatty and having a nice musical laugh as what was described. Can't quite think what a musical laugh is, but and speaking with what was claimed to be a London accent. He was described as wearing a dirty dark blue overcoat, dark trousers and a red plaid shirt with no tie or hat. Reports of this man came in from all over the county, 
sightings of a person matching this description were reported in the days leading up to the murder as being in one of the pubs close to Holland Road at various transport cafes in the area and intriguingly lurking around near the Savoy Ballroom itself and it was considered that the man may be a lorry driver or lorry driver's mate travelling around and trying it on with lone women. Checks with the electricity board revealed that no faults had been reported in the areas and no inspectors were due in the areas around the dates and times this man had been there, so he certainly wasn't one of these. It's very sinister sounding that actually, isn't it? But perhaps most crucially, this man was reported as having called at the home of a housewife and being rebuffed at 1.30pm on the day of Penelope's murder at a house just 180 yards away from number 7 Holland Road. The housewife who'd encountered him said later to police, He was quite a cheerful fellow with a nice musical laugh. He said that he came from somewhere I recognise as a London suburb, but I can't remember the name of it. He was in the house for about 15 minutes. I was in the kitchen and when I turned around he was right up there behind me. He seemed to examine the junction box for a few minutes, then went into the dining room. He put his hands on the dining room table and just stared silently at me, and that made me feel uncomfortable. Suddenly he began chatting again. He asked one of my kids where his daddy was and if he came home for dinner or not. Then he told me I had a nice figure and I asked him to leave at once. He did so, and after looking back into the house, he ran off at a great speed towards the railway station. The fuse box cover that the man had touched was taken away from the house by police for forensic examination, but no matching fingerprints from it were found in police files, and nor were they found to be a match with the fingerprints that were found in the Magano dining room. The other person police wished to trace was a man who was seen exiting a telephone box on the corner of nearby Heathcote Street, just 300 yards away from Holland Road across Radford Common on the afternoon of the murder. At about 3.30pm that afternoon, a witness saw a man leaving the kiosk with a heavily bloodstained makeshift bandage wrapped around his right hand. The man waited around for a number of minutes after exiting the kiosk, so the witness, who was sat in a parked car nearby, was able to get a good look at him. The man was described as being in his mid-twenties, about 5 feet 6 inches tall, having dark hair and a sallow complexion, with a red mark or scar across the bridge of his nose and wearing a black overcoat and trousers. After a number of minutes standing about, the witness recalled the man running off along Heathcote Road in the direction of the nearby village of Kersley. What was thought to be the same man was spotted hitchhiking nearby about 30 minutes later by another witness, where he was spotted being picked up by the driver of an orange lorry. The telephone kiosk where this guy had come out of was actually dismantled and taken away for forensic examination, and some bloodstains were subsequently found in it, albeit more than a week after the murder, but could never positively be identified as being connected to the crime. It is reported that they match Penelope's blood group, but one account I found whilst I was researching claims that the bloodstains were later identified as belonging to a police officer who'd been injured during effecting an arrest in the area a week before, who was also reportedly of the same blood group as the murdered woman. 
despite both witnesses who'd seen the man on the day trawling through several logbooks of criminal mugshots that police held on file, neither witness could identify the man that they'd seen from these. Indeed, there were conflicting accounts as to whether this man, or the bogus electrical inspector, whatever you want to call him, were ever traced or identified, but most commonly throughout sources that I've found about the case, it is reported that the former was eventually traced down to London, but was ruled out of the inquiry, whilst the bogus electrical inspector was also traced some time later, and although he did end up in court, it was on charges of dishonesty, and certainly nothing to do with the horrific slaughter of Penelope Morgano. Future sex offender there as well, therefore. By the end of February 1954, the inquiry had stalled and residents of the area were left scared in their own homes, terrified that someone the police described as a maniac was still at large. Smashing someone's head in almost beyond recognition, then cutting their lips off and their tongue in half would tend to suggest that police were right, wouldn't it? I mean, bloody hell, you wouldn't want to go out, would you? The mass questionnaire distribution exercise had only produced a few leads, which had been investigated but all led to dead ends. 10,000 statements had been taken from the 25,000 people who'd been spoken to during the course of the inquiry, and each one provided little except to give a pretty much solid alibi for the person concerned. No further murder weapon, the £2 hammer, had been found apart from the blood-stained carving knife. The bogus electrical inspector or the hitchhiker with a blood-stained hand hadn't been found at that time, and police were still trying to work out a definite motive for Penelope's death. It led police to issue a statement saying that they believed Penelope's killer had been spoken to already, and that somebody was shielding him or her out of misguided loyalty or affection, out of fear, or perhaps even out of guilt. But nothing came of this though, and every lead available to investigating officers had been examined as fully as possible and had still not advanced the inquiry. With no further incoming information, the inquiry was eventually wound down some months later. Although the file has never been closed, it was eventually classed sometime afterwards as an unsolved murder and was effectively left on file, today being officially earmarked as active with regular reviews. Now you can sympathise with the police here somewhat, can't you? With the psychological profiling, and they've got Holmes, the computer system that collates all information concerning an investigation so that it's available at a simple keystroke, and advancements in DNA and forensic science that are all investigative tools of today that are so commonplace, it's easy to overlook the fact that 65 years ago, None of this existed, and police had to rely pretty much on the simple knocking-on-doors methods. An investigation of the crime were it to occur today would be a massively different one from that of 65 years ago, because straight away you'd have a psychological profiler on it, you'd have a geographical profiler, you'd have DNA, of course, all of the usual mixed bag of tricks that investigators now have. And due to the lengthy passage of time since Penelope's murder, the chance of a successful detection of a killer is now very minimal, bordering upon almost impossible, as a killer would likely themselves be very elderly now, if not in a hospital or nursing home, perhaps they're even dead. Any physical descriptions of suspects would be moot now, of course, due to the passage of time, 
and it's unknown if any of the items that were removed from the crime scene were retained for the possibility of maybe doing a DNA test on them using the technology of today. Should any of these items have been retained, then who knows, a matching result on the National DNA Database from any DNA recovered that was possibly left by Penelope's killer may even be able to be gleaned from a familial DNA match. Depending, of course, if any exhibits remain. And it's 65 years ago, so it's a very, very slim possibility. What then was the motive for such a savage killing? Police considered and ruled out several different theories at the time. Penelope was not raped or sexually molested in any way, so it being a sex crime was discounted by police. It was not considered to have been for financial gain or as part of a robbery gone wrong. Nothing was taken from the scene, the house wasn't ransacked, and a robbery gone wrong would more likely have involved the culprit just fleeing. It doesn't necessitate murder, and certainly not one so savage and involving two different weapons, does it? No, this was, and it still is, considered a very personal, targeted attack. But why so personal? The mutilation and violence used suggests someone who absolutely hated Penelope, ergo somebody that knew her well enough to feel so strongly about this, and it's difficult to believe that this went unnoticed with such an exhaustive, in-depth police investigation at the time. No evidence was found to suggest that anyone bore her a grudge, but two bizarre incidents did come to light during the investigation that made police think that the Meganos possibly did have an enemy, and perhaps one that stemmed from the dancing circles they were involved in, or someone who had a deranged hatred of the whole scene. Just three nights before the murder, the home of Sidney Worrell, who lived nearby to the Meganos on Bassett Road, and who was a leading figure in the dancing circles the Meganos belonged to, plus the person Penelope was heading out to have afternoon tea with on the day she was murdered, Sidney suffered an arson attack at home when a person or persons unknown started a fire using a petrol-soaked lit rag that was thrown into his downstairs pantry through an open side window. The fire was quickly extinguished and nobody was hurt, however, but coupled to this was the fact that in the November before Penelope was murdered, a person or persons unknown placed petrol-soaked rags underneath the bonnet of the Magano's car whilst it was parked on their driveway and set it alight. Again, the fire was quickly spotted and extinguished, and the car wasn't damaged too severely. Both of these incidents could of course be unconnected and simply be the work of random kids who were out to cause devilment. But it does seem a strange coincidence. Both petrol ignited fires, both to prominent members of the Coventry dancing scene who happened to be close friends. Were the two incidents connected? And was it somehow tied in with the dancing circles? Was this some kind of message or a threat? Did someone have some kind of deranged grudge against old-time dancers, or was it a case of jealousy? I believe that it was connected myself. Dancing seemed to be central to this inquiry. It was the Meganos' main pastime, and their social circle revolved around it. And by all accounts, the Meganos were practised and accomplished at doing it, and had won several competitions, both with one another and with other partners. Carlo had told police that both he and Penelope had a rotor of other dancing partners that they practiced regularly with and entered these competitions together with, and a recent change in this rotor, 
for reasons that were never ascertained, had left Penelope most upset, he claimed. She'd even reportedly appealed these changes, but they were upheld. What the reason she was most upset about can only be speculated at, however, but I'll come back to this shortly. There were also the mystery excursions in the afternoons where Penelope was seen carrying dancing shoes, the arson attacks, as we just said, on leading persons connected with the dancing circles, and the sudden cessation of Penelope's activities in the Ladies' Guild and fostering, claiming exhaustion from combining all of these and her constant dancing too. Yet she wasn't to give up or cut down on the dancing, indeed, she seemed to have swapped her other pastimes and ties to be able to do more of it in the afternoons. And you'd think that cutting down dancing from five times a week to say maybe three would be the logical thing to do if you were so knackered from doing it all, not keep going with it and indeed take further dancing lessons. But was she in fact doing this? And if she was, why didn't she share it with Carlo? Was Penelope in fact up to something else completely and the shoes were a cover of some sort, something that was enough that jealousy or a desire for revenge caused someone to bear a murderous grudge against Penelope, an affair for example, and was the killer a jealous woman, or even a couple maybe? If the change in dancing partners was enough to cause such upset for Penelope, then could it be because a change in partners would mean that she couldn't be as up close to someone that she wanted to be. Questions, questions indeed, eh? There are several aspects of the crime that suggest either a woman or a couple as killers is a real possibility. Penelope may have allowed a female that she knew into her house because she didn't recognise her as a threat, most likely, say, a fellow dancer from the Savoy, and if it was someone that she knew well, she would not have necessarily felt the need to change into more respectable dress. They may have gone through to the dining room to talk and Penelope sat down in the chair and at some point the woman caller may have got up and then suddenly carried out the assault, most likely a swift hammer attack that would have instantly incapacitated Penelope and rendered her swiftly unconscious without even a chance to scream but very rapidly left her dead as blow after blow rained down. She must have had at least a moment to try and defend herself due to defensive injuries that were found on the backs of her hands which would suggest an initial blow having stunned her and her hands have automatically gone up to her head to shield, but then the blows continued raining down and soon enough she was dead. Either the bloodlust was then not satisfied or the intended message wasn't satisfactorily expressed. The killer then fetched a knife from the kitchen and carried out the horrific yet very deliberate mutilation and slicing off somebody's lips and cutting their tongue in half is very deliberate and it would suggest that this is someone unhappy with something Penelope had said, or was going to say, or could say. Very, very unhappy to feel the need to defile her in death in such a way. The killer or killers must then have been very heavily bloodstained from such an orgy of bloody violence, and had to have cleaned themselves up, perhaps hiding any bloodstained clothing with an overcoat when leaving, by either walking calmly away from the scene, or using a car that was parked nearby. And for any overcoats who had been blood-free, then it must have been taken off and hung up neatly in the hall, as in keeping with the house-proud Penelope, which again suggests to me that it was somebody she knew and she invited a killer in. I added the plural killers there too before, 
because it could have been a couple again that Penelope knew, and the couple could have wielded a weapon each. This would also fit with two different weapons being used in the murder, and a line in the official police report does read, The knife attack implied that a woman's hand used the blade. It's also unlikely that anyone in 1954 seeing a couple walking down a suburban street would have associated them with having just committed horrific murder. It didn't happen. Couples didn't kill. It took the deeds of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley a decade later to make people in the country confront the knowledge that indeed, couples do kill. And a couple would equally fit into the dancing circle that every aspect of the case seems to revolve around. You know, Penelope answers a knock on the door and lo and behold, it's Keith and Deirdre from the Savoy. Come in, Keith and Deirdre. I'll put the kettle on quickly because I'm off out soon, you see, etc, etc. No reason whatsoever to suspect any harm coming. But yet, as I said before, you'd think that the reason for someone having such a grudge against Penelope to commit such ghastly violence and mutilation against her would have come to light in a subsequent massive investigation into her murder. Surely somebody must have known or had an inkling as to a reason such as that. Surely any grudge or falling out, jealousy even, would have been noticed by Carlo or other club members and would have come to light during these inquiries. Or, as we've suggested, was it the result of a very clandestine affair that Penelope was having being discovered, or if not, a perceived one by a jealous party or a spurned wife? It's the easy and logical jump to think that Penelope may have been involved in a relationship with a regular dance partner of hers that wasn't Carlo, but it isn't necessarily the case. It's not something that I watched myself, to be honest, but you can't really get away from Strictly, can you? It seems to be everywhere. I'm sure one day if you lift the toilet seat up, Strictly will be looking at your glitter balls and all that. And when I was at my mum's the other day, I happened to read something in the newspaper about the curse of Strictly and how many contestants' relationships have broken down since they've appeared on the show. The chemistry developed between the celebrities and their professional dance partners proving too much of a strain on several relationships. People do see their arse about a loved one being up close and personal with someone else, don't they? Was this what happened here? Did a jealous wife of a dance partner of Penelope's finally snap after seeing the obvious connection between Penelope and her husband? And it must have been obvious for them to be so good as to win several dance competitions, mustn't it? Now I have no wish to badmouth the dead here at all either, because nothing was found after all to suggest that the affair angle was true. We're just speculating here. But I do find it hard to believe that such a horrific bloodthirsty crime was committed simply due to jealousy over dancing. I mean, can somebody want a trophy that much? The unexplained afternoon excursions and the change in her well-established routines does suggest that Penelope may not have been the virtuous housewife that everyone took her to be, and she was indeed involved in an affair with a dancing partner, one that she met in afternoon trysts. And the question always seems to come back to then, did a jealous lover or a spurned other half of the said lover then kill her? But why such savage mutilation and an overkill of violence? What message were they attempting to send? Or was it Carlo who was involved with someone and a jealous and spurned partner had found out and opted not to settle things with Carlo personally 
but had decided to strike at him where it would hurt him much more and somewhere that he would have to live with forever, the loss of his wife and the mother of his children. Or perhaps most chilling of all, was there indeed a maniac just wandering around Coventry that day with murder in mind, who just knocked on a door at random when the urge to kill came upon them, and it was Penelope who was unlucky enough to have answered. What do you think? It is a horrific and chilling crime even still to this day, and the gaps in what's definitively known only serve to frustrate the investigator and to raise more questions than give answers. Again, I must remind the listener that when I cover unsolved cases here on the show, I can only ever express hypothesis based on what's known. This isn't me saying, well, what happened clearly is this. It's all speculation and it's just me thinking out loud. The crime has appeared in features in the local press on several occasions over the years since Penelope was murdered and has been reappealed on several occasions, but even each time the theories are raked over once again within these reappeals, investigators still come up against the same brick walls each time that are made even more difficult due to the passage of time now, because any people who could shed light on the crime because of course somebody knew about this, of course they did, and I do believe that Penelope's killer was spoken to in the course of the investigation, but they never come forward at the time through fear or misguided loyalty or out of guilt. They are now likely long dead themselves. No one has ever come forward over the years to confess to the murder, no serious suspects have ever publicly been named, nor anyone else arrested or charged in connection with the crime. It's never even been linked to any other cases. Documents relating to the investigation are held in the National Archives, but they're not due for release for at least another two decades just yet, and even then they're not expected to shed much light on the mystery. Whoever did kill Penelope Magano, and exactly why, remains today as much of a puzzle as it did from that fateful day in January 1954 and it seems that it sadly may forever remain in the annals of the UK's unsolved murders. Carlo Magano himself lived for another 32 years afterwards, never seeing the killer of his beloved wife brought to justice, right up until his death in March 1986. Penelope's sons, should they still be alive today themselves, will both now be elderly and will have had to go through their lives with the shadow of Penelope's horrific murder hanging over them denied a mother through their adult years, and perhaps having their own families who never got to meet their grandmother Penelope. That's not something deserved by any parties involved, that is it? I did find a strange point of note and a postscript to the case whilst I was trawling through archives looking for information about it. Firstly, three weeks after the murder, it was reported that detectives had visited a medium named Mary Brooks in the West Midlands area of Hay Mills on a number of occasions during the investigation after she'd come forward to police claiming to have had visions of Penelope's killer. Using the spirit guide of an old Irish woman who Mary interpreted from, in a trance she described an ageing, dapper, meek and mild man who liked dancing, who was a Coventry native but had since left the area, and whose absence from work on the afternoon of the murder had been covered up by his workmates. Penelope, she went on to describe, had met this man before and knew him. She was always going to be killed that day, Mary claimed, and the murder weapon was actually a heavy brass dog ornament that was subsequently thrown into stagnant water. 
In her trance, she could describe the man in vivid detail, right down to the bloodstain into the right pocket of his coat, where he placed the bloodstained brass dog afterwards. But this description, as far as I was able to ascertain, was never publicly released by police further than the generalisation that I've given here. And as far as I could tell, no brass dogs matching the description that she'd given were ever found either, even though various ponds and streams in the area were searched as a matter of routine following the murder. I'd be a bit like, never mind describing the bloody brass dog in his pocket. How about what's his name like, Mary, if you can do it? I must admit, though, I've been a couple of times in my life myself to mediums and fortune tellers, and I've been a bit, hmm, some stuff, how could you have known that, really, that bang on? Whether these visions were genuine or accurate, then, who knows? The truth is out there, eh? See, I can be Mulder and Scully, I can. The second point, the postscript to this story, is also a strange coincidence. Although Carlo and his sons did stay in the house at Holland Road for another four years after the murder, I don't know if I could have done that, to be honest. Personally, me, I, I think too many bad memories, you know. They eventually moved out to live in a different part of Coventry in 1958 to make a fresh start, selling the house at Holland Road to a family named Peacock. Less than a year later, on the 27th of January 1959, Gladys Peacock, the mother of the family, was overcome by paraffin fumes coming from a faulty heater in her bedroom and was killed in the house. And although a verdict of accidental death was recorded, it prompted the Coventry City Coroner, Mr C. Elif, to remark, This house has rather an unfortunate history. Oh shit there, mate. What are the chances of two deaths, both of the women of the household, almost five years to the day apart, in unnatural circumstances, in the same suburban house in a quiet Coventry street? I know it's just pure coincidence, I just thought it was quite remarkable is all, and it looks like such a nondescript house today. But then again, what does a death house really look like? Well... What are your thoughts about the murder of Penelope Magano, the dancing housewife? I know I've thrown a hell of a lot of questions up here in the episode, but there is so much about the case we don't know. What do you think were the reasons behind her murder? Anyone that you have in mind who is responsible? Hopefully by now you know where to air your views, should you wish. The thread will be up in the Facebook group, probably before you've even finished this episode, and I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts. You can also reach me through any of the show's social media or mail the show if you want to discuss this case further and I will always get back to you. Before I wrap up for this episode though, I wanted to give a quick mention before we go about the British Podcast Awards, specifically the Listener's Choice Award. If you follow me on social media, you'll have perhaps seen that this is something that not just myself but several of the other UK true crime podcast hosts have also shared about. Now it's held each year, it does have its best of section nominees and even has its best true crime nominees. The ones chosen this year for that section are some very slick, very well produced shows that if you have a look down through the list, they may be ones that you've listened to and you think to yourself, yeah fair dues, you do deserve an award for doing that, it's an ace show. And I have to say best of luck to all shows that are nominated in that category. But the most important section, I think, is the Listener's Choice Award, where from now up until the 15th of May, 
fans can vote for their absolute favourite UK podcast. Not necessarily a true crime one, it can be absolutely anything. But true crime is why we are both here, isn't it? It's our bag after all. So why not take a moment out to visit the link that's in the show notes this week and vote for your favourite UK true crime show out of the many that there is. There are fantastic shows out there such as Outlines, UK True Crime, The Unseen Podcast, They Walk Among Us, No Remorse, Murder Mile, Seeing Red, Nothing Rhymes With Murder, Extraordinary Stories to name but a few where the hosts all work incredibly hard and give time and dedication to bring such great shows to their listeners. These guys do it all themselves, they're not BBC funded, they don't have teams of researchers and production staff. More often than not, it's either done and funded completely on their own or in a pair. Personally, I respect that hard work much more and I'd always enjoy a show such as these much more because I like the personal touch and I completely understand the work that goes into one because I obviously do it too after all, don't I? So head over and show your absolute favourite show some love and hopefully one or more of these guys may next year be up there competing with the BBC produced ones who are of course still twats for cancelling Crime Watch. And with that, it's off to begin the next one. Thanks so much all for joining me here today. I hope that you found the episode an informative and interesting one, and I hope that you can join me for the next. Until we next speak, I've been and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you really soon. Cheers all, take care, and goodbye for now.